Book the Second, Chapter Two of the Ambassadors by Henry James. Strether called his second morning in Paris on the bankers of the Rue Scribe, to whom his letter of credit was addressed, and he made this visit attended by Waymarsh, in whose company he had crossed from London two days before. They had hastened to the Rue Scribe on the morrow of their arrival, but Strether had not then found the letters, the hope of which prompted this errand. He had had as yet none at all hadn't expected them in London, but had counted on several in Paris, and disconcerted now, had presently strolled back to the boulevard, with a sense of injury that he felt himself taking for as good a start as any other. It would serve, this spur to his spirit, he reflected, as, pausing at the top of the street, he looked up and down the great foreign avenue, it would serve to begin business with. His idea was to begin business immediately, and it did much for him the rest of his day that the beginning of business awaited him. He did little else till night but ask himself what he should do if he hadn't fortunately had so much to do. But he put himself the question in many different situations and connections. What carried him hither and yon was an admirable theory that nothing he could do wouldn't be in some manner related to what he fundamentally had on hand, or would be, should he happen to have a scruple, wasted for it. He did happen to have a scruple, a scruple about taking no definite step till he should get letters, but this reasoning carried it off. A single day to feel his feet, he had felt them as yet only at Chester and in London, was, he could consider, none too much, and having, as he had often privately expressed it, Paris to reckon with, he threw these hours of freshness consciously into the reckoning. They made it continually greater but that was what it had best be if it was to be anything at all, and he gave himself up till far into the evening, at the theatre and on the return after the theatre, along the bright congested boulevard, to feeling it grow. Waymarsh had accompanied him this time to the play, and the two men had walked together as a first stage from the gymnase to the Café Riche, into the crowded terrace of which establishment, the night, or rather the morning, for midnight had struck, being bland and populous, they had wedged themselves for refreshment. Waymarsh, as a result of some discussion with his friend, had made a marked virtue of his having now let himself go, and there had been elements of impression in their half-hour over their watered beer-glasses that gave him his occasion for conveying that he held this compromise with his stiffer self to have become extreme. He conveyed it, for it was still, after all, his stiffer self who gloomed out of the glare of the terrace, in solemn silence, and there was indeed a great deal of critical silence every way between the companions, even till they gained the Place de l'Opéra, as to the character of their nocturnal progress. This morning there were letters, letters which had reached London, apparently altogether, the day of Strether's journey, and had taken their time to follow him so that after a controlled impulse to go into them in the reception-room of the bank, which, reminding him of the post-office at Woollett, affected him as the abutment of some transatlantic bridge, he slipped them into the pocket of his loose grey overcoat with a sense of the felicity of carrying them off. Waymarsh, who had had letters yesterday, had had them again to-day, and Waymarsh suggested in this particular no controlled impulses. The last one he was at all events likely to be observed to struggle with was clearly that of bringing to a premature close any visit to the Rue Scribe. 
Strether had left him there yesterday. He wanted to see the papers, and he had spent, by what his friend could make out, a succession of hours with the papers. He spoke of the establishment, with emphasis, as a post of superior observation, just as he spoke generally of his actual damnable doom as a device for hiding from him what was going on. Europe was best described, to his mind, as an elaborate engine for dissociating the confined American from that indispensable knowledge, and was accordingly only rendered bearable by these occasional stations of relief, traps for the arrest of wandering western airs. Strether, on his side, set himself to walk again. He had his relief in his pocket, and indeed, much as he desired his budget, the growth of restlessness might have been marked in him from the moment he had assured himself of the superscription of most of the missives it contained. This restlessness became therefore his temporary law. He knew he should recognize as soon as see it the best place of all for settling down with his chief correspondent. He had for the next hour an accidental air of looking for it in the windows of shops. He came down the Rue de la Paix in the sun, and passing across the Tuileries and the river, indulged more than once, as if on finding himself determined, in a sudden pause before the bookstalls of the opposite quay. In the garden of the Tuileries he had lingered, in two or three spots, to look. It was as if the wonderful Paris spring had stayed with him as he roamed. The prompt Paris morning struck its cheerful notes, in a soft breeze and a sprinkled smell, in the light flit over the garden floor of bare-headed girls with the buckled strap of oblong boxes, in the type of ancient thrifty persons basking betimes where terrace walls were warm, in the blue-frocked brass-labeled officialism of humble rakers and scrapers, in the deep references of a straight-pacing priest or the sharp ones of a white-gaitered red-legged soldier. He watched little brisk figures, figures whose movement was as the tick of the great Paris clock, take their smooth diagonal from point to point. The air had a taste as of something mixed with art, something that presented nature as a white-capped master chef. The palace was gone, Strether remembered the palace, and when he gazed into the irremediable void of its sight, the historic sense in him might have been freely at play the play under which in Paris indeed it so often winces like a touched nerve. He filled out spaces with dim symbols of scenes. He caught the gleam of white statues, at the base of which, with his letters out, he could tilt back a straw-bottomed chair. But his drift was for reasons to the other side, and it floated him unspent up the Rue de Seine and as far as the Luxembourg. In the Luxembourg gardens he pulled up, here at last he found his nook, and here on a penny chair from which terraces, alleys, vistas, fountains, little trees in green tubs, little women in white caps, and shrill little girls at play, all sunnily composed together, he passed an hour in which the cup of his impression seemed truly to overflow. But a week had elapsed since he quitted the ship, and there were more things in his mind than so few days could account for. More than once during that time he had regarded himself as admonished, but the admonition this morning was formidably sharp. It took as it hadn't done yet the form of a question, the question of what he was doing with such an extraordinary sense of escape. The sense was sharpest after he had read his letters, 
but that was also precisely why the question pressed. Four of the letters were from Mrs. Newsome, and none of them short. She had lost no time, had followed on his heels while he moved, so expressing herself that he now could measure the probable frequency with which he should hear. They would arrive, it would seem, her communications, at the rate of several a week. He should be able to count, it might even prove, on more than one by each mail. If he had begun yesterday with a small grievance, he had therefore an opportunity to begin to-day with its opposite. He read the letters successively and slowly, putting others back into his pocket, but keeping these for a long time afterwards gathered in his lap. He held them there, lost in thought, as if to prolong the presence of what they gave him, or as if at least to assure them their part in the constitution of some lucidity. His friend wrote admirably, and her tone was even more in her style than in her voice. He might almost, for the hour, have had to come this distance to get its full carrying quality. Yet the plenitude of his consciousness of difference consorted perfectly with the deepened intensity of the connection. It was the difference, the difference of being just where he was and as he was, that formed the escape. This difference was so much greater than he had dreamed it would be, and what he finally sat there turning over was the strange logic of his finding himself so free. He felt it in a manner his duty to think out his state, to approve the process, and when he came in fact to trace the steps and add up the items, they sufficiently accounted for the sum. He had never expected, that was the truth of it, again to find himself young, and all the years and other things that had taken to make him so were exactly his present arithmetic. He had to make sure of them to put his scruple to rest. It all sprang at bottom from the beauty of Mrs. Newsome's desire, that he should be worried with nothing that was not of the essence of his task. By insisting that he should thoroughly intermit and break, she had so provided for his freedom, that she would, as it were, have only herself to thank. Strether could not at this point indeed have completed his thought by the image of what she might have to thank herself for. The image at best of his own likeness, poor Lambert Strether washed up on the sunny strand by the waves of a single day, poor Lambert Strether thankful for breathing time and stiffening himself while he gasped. There he was, and with nothing in his aspect or his posture to scandalize. It was only true that if he had seen Mrs. Newsome coming, he would instinctively have jumped up to walk away a little. He would have come round and back to her bravely, but he would have had first to pull himself together. She abounded in news of the situation at home, proved to him how perfectly she was arranging for his absence, told him who would take up this and who would take up that exactly where he had left it gave him, in fact, chapter and verse for the moral that nothing would suffer. It filled for him, this tone of hers, all the air, yet it struck him at the same time as the hum of vain things. This latter effect was what he tried to justify, and with a success that, grave though the appearance, he at last lighted on a form that was happy. He arrived at it by the inevitable recognition of his having been a fortnight before one of the weariest of men, if ever a man had come off tired, Lambert Strether was that man, and hadn't it been distinctly on the ground of his fatigue that his wonderful friend at home had so felt for him and so contrived? 
It seemed to him somehow at these instants, that could he only maintain with sufficient firmness his grasp of that truth, it might become in a manner his compass and his helm. What he wanted most was some idea that would simplify, and nothing would do this so much as the fact that he was done for and finished. If it had been in such a light that he had just detected in his cup the dregs of youth, that was a mere flaw of the surface of his scheme. He was so distinctly fagged out that it must serve precisely as his convenience, and if he could but consistently be good for little enough, he might do everything he wanted. Everything he wanted was comprised, moreover, in a single boon, the common unattainable art of taking things as they came. He appeared to himself to have given his best years to an active appreciation of the way they didn't come. But perhaps, as they would seemingly here be things quite other, this long ache might at last drop to rest. He could easily see that from the moment he should accept the notion of his foredoomed collapse, the last thing he would lack would be reasons and memories. Oh, if he should do the sum, no slate would hold the figures. The fact that he had failed, as he considered it, in everything, in each relation, and in half a dozen trades, as he liked luxuriously to put it, might have made, might still make, for an empty present. But it stood solidly for a crowded past. It had not been so much achievement missed, a light yoke, nor a short load. It was at present as if the backward picture had hung there, the long crooked course, grey in the shadow, of his solitude. It had been a dreadful, cheerful, sociable solitude, a solitude of life or choice, of community, but though there had been people enough all round it, there had been but three or four persons in it. Waymarsh was one of these, and the fact struck him just now as marking the record. Mrs. Newsome was another, and Miss Gostrey had of a sudden showed signs of becoming a third. Beyond, behind them, was the pale figure of his real youth, which held against its breast the two presences paler than itself, the young wife he had early lost, and the young son he had stupidly sacrificed. He had again and again made out for himself that he might have kept his little boy, his little dull boy, who had died at school of rapid diphtheria, if he had not in those years so insanely given himself to merely missing the mother. It was the soreness of his remorse that the child had in all likelihood not really been dull, had been dull as he had been banished and neglected, mainly because the father had been unwittingly selfish. This was doubtless but the secret habit of sorrow, which had slowly given way to time, yet there remained an ache sharp enough to make the spirit, at the sight now and again of some fair young man just growing up, wince with the thought of an opportunity lost. Had ever a man, he had finally fallen into the way of asking himself, lost so much, and even done so much for so little? There had been particular reasons why all yesterday, beyond other days, he should have had in one ear this cold inquiry. His name on the green cover, where he had put it for Mrs. Newsome, expressed him doubtless just enough to make the world, the world is distinguished, both for more and for less, from Woollett ask who he was. He had incurred the ridicule of having to have his explanation explained. He was Lambert Strether because he was on the cover, whereas it should have been, for anything like glory, that he was on the cover because he was Lambert Strether. 
He would have done anything for Mrs. Newsome, have been still more ridiculous, as he might, for that matter, have occasion to be yet, which came to saying that this acceptance of fate was all he had to show at fifty-five. He judged the quantity as small because it was small, and all the more egregiously since it couldn't, as he saw the case, so much as thinkably have been larger. He hadn't had the gift of making the most of what he tried, and if he had tried and tried again, no one but himself knew how often, it appeared to have been that he might demonstrate what else, in default of that, could be made. Old ghosts of experiments came back to him, old drudgeries and delusions and disgusts, old recoveries with their relapses, old fevers with their chills, broken moments of good faith, others of still better doubt, adventures for the most part of the sort qualified as lessons. The special spring that had constantly played for him the day before was the recognition, frequent enough to surprise him, of the promises to himself that he had, after his other visit, never kept. The reminiscence to-day most quickened for him was that of the vow taken in the course of the pilgrimage, that newly married, with the war just over, and helplessly young in spite of it, he had recklessly made with the creature who was so much younger still. It had been a bold dash, for which they had taken money set apart for necessities, but kept sacred at the moment in a hundred ways, and in none more so than by this private pledge of his own to treat the occasion as a relation formed with a higher culture, and see that, as they said at Woollett, it should bear a good harvest. He had believed, saving home again, that he had gained something great, and his theory, with an elaborate innocent plan of reading, digesting, coming back even every few years, had then been to preserve, cherish, and extend it. As such plans as these had come to nothing, however, in respect to acquisition still more precious, it was doubtless little enough of a marvel that he should have lost account of that handful of seed. Buried for long years in dark corners at any rate, these few germs had sprouted again under forty-eight hours of Paris. The process of yesterday had really been the process of feeling the general stirred life of connections long since individually dropped. Strether had become acquainted even on this ground with short gusts of speculation, sudden flights of fancy in Louvre galleries, hungry gazes through clear plates behind which lemon-coloured volumes were as fresh as fruit on the tree. There were instants at which he could ask whether, since there had been fundamentally so little question of his keeping anything, the fate, after all, decreed for him, hadn't been only to be kept. Kept for something in that event that he didn't pretend, didn't possibly dare as yet to divine, something that made him hover and wonder and laugh and sigh, made him advance and retreat, feeling half ashamed of his impulse to plunge and more than half afraid of his impulse to wait. He remembered, for instance, how he had gone back in the sixties with lemon-coloured volumes in general on the brain, as well as with a dozen, selected for his wife, too, in his trunk, and nothing had at the moment shown more confidence than this invocation of the finer taste. They were still somewhere at home, the dozen, stale and soiled, and never sent to the binder. But what had become of the sharp initiation they represented? They represented now the mere sallow paint on the door of the Temple of Taste that he had dreamed of raising up, a structure he had practically never carried further. Strether's present highest flights were perhaps those in which this particular lapse figured to him as a symbol, 
a symbol of his long grind and his want of odd moments, his want, moreover, of money, of opportunity, of positive dignity. That the memory of the vow of his youth should, in order to throb again, have had to wait for this last, as he felt it, of all his accidents, that was surely proof enough of how his conscience had been encumbered. If any further proof were needed, it would have to be found in the fact that, as he now perfectly saw, he had ceased even to measure his meagerness, a meagerness that sprawled, in this retrospect, vague and comprehensive, stretching back like some unmapped hinterland from a rough coast settlement. His conscience had been amusing itself for the forty-eight hours by forbidding him the purchase of a book. He held off from that, held off from everything. From the moment he didn't yet call on Chad, he wouldn't for the world have taken any other step. On this evidence, however, of the way they actually affected him, he glared at the lemon-coloured covers, in confession of the subconsciousness that all the same, in the great desert of the years, he must have had of them. The green covers at home comprised, by the law of their purpose, no tribute to letters. It was of a mere rich kernel of economics, politics, ethics, that glazed and, as Mrs. Newsom maintained, rather against his view, pre-eminently pleasant to touch, they formed the specious shell. Without, therefore, any needed instinctive knowledge of what was coming out in Paris on the bright highway, he struck himself at present as having more than once flushed with a suspicion. He couldn't otherwise at present be feeling so many fears confirmed. There were movements he was too late for, weren't they, with the fun of them already spent? There were sequences he had missed, and great gaps in the procession. He might have been watching it all recede in a golden cloud of dust. If the playhouse wasn't closed, his seat had at least fallen to somebody else. He had had an uneasy feeling the night before that if he was at the theatre at all, though he indeed justified the theatre in the specific sense, and with a grotesqueness to which his imagination did all honour, as something he owed poor Waymarsh, he should have been there with, and as might have been said, for Chad. This suggested the question of whether he could properly have taken him to such a play, and what effect, it was a point that suddenly rose, his peculiar responsibility might be held in general to have on his choice of entertainment. It had literally been present to him at the gymnase, where one was held, moreover, comparatively safe that having his young friend at his side would have been an odd feature of the work of redemption, and this quite in spite of the fact that the picture presented might well, confronted with Chad's own private stage, have seemed the pattern of propriety. He clearly hadn't come out in the name of propriety, but to visit unattended equivocal performances. Yet still less had he done so to undermine his authority by sharing them with the graceless youth. Was he to renounce all amusement for the sweet sake of that authority? And would such renouncement give him for Chad a moral glamour? The little problem bristled the more by reason of poor Strether's fairly open sense of the irony of things. Were there then sides on which his predicament threatened to look rather droll to him? Should he have to pretend to believe, either to himself or the wretched boy, that there was anything that could make the latter worse? Wasn't some such pretense, on the other hand, involved in the assumption of possible processes that would make him better? His great uneasiness seemed to peep at him out of the imminent impression that almost any acceptance of Paris might give one's authority away. 
It hung before him this morning, the vast bright Babylon, like some huge iridescent object, a jewel brilliant and hard, in which parts were not to be discriminated, nor differences comfortably marked. It twinkled and trembled and melted together, and what seemed all surface one moment seemed all depth the next. It was a place of which, unmistakably, Chad was fond. Wherefore, if he, Strether, should like it too much, what on earth, with such a bond, would become of either of them? It all depended, of course, which was a gleam of light, on how the too much was measured, though indeed our friend fairly felt, while he prolonged the meditation I describe, that for himself even already a certain measure had been reached. It will have been sufficiently seen that he was not a man to neglect any good chance for reflection. Was it at all possible, for instance, to like Paris enough, without liking it too much? He, luckily, however, hadn't promised Mrs. Newsome not to like it at all. He was ready to recognize at this stage that such an engagement would have tied his hands. The Luxembourg gardens were incontestably just so adorable at this hour by reason, in addition to their intrinsic charm, of his not having taken it. The only engagement he had taken, when he looked the thing in the face, was to do what he reasonably could. It upset him a little none the less, and after a while to find himself at last remembering on what current of association he had floated so far. Old imaginations of the Latin Quarter had played their part for him, and he had duly recalled its having been with this scene of rather ominous legend, that like so many young men in fiction as well as in fact, Chad had begun. He was now quite out of it, with his home, as Strether figured the place, in the boulevard Malherbe, which was perhaps why, repairing, not to fail of justice either, to the elder neighbourhood, our friend had felt he could allow for the element of the usual, the immemorial, without courting perturbation. He was not at least in danger of seeing the youth and the particular person flaunt by together and yet he was in the very air of which, just to feel what the early natural note must have been, he wished most to take counsel. It became at once vivid to him that he had originally had for a few days an almost envious vision of the boy's romantic privilege. Melancholy Murger, with Francine and Musette and Rodolphe, at home in the copy of the tattered, one, if not he and his single self, two or three, of the unbound, the paper-covered dozen on the shelf, and when Chad had written five years ago, after a sojourn then already prolonged to six months, that he had decided to go in for economy and the real thing, Strether's fancy had quite fondly accompanied him in this migration, which was to convey him, as they somewhat confusedly learned at Woollett, across the bridges and up the Montagne saint Genevieve. This was the region, Chad had been quite distinct about it, in which the best French and many other things were to be learned at least cost, and in which all sorts of clever fellows, compatriots there for a purpose, formed an awfully pleasant set. The clever fellows, the friendly countrymen, were mainly young painters, sculptors, architects, medical students. But they were, Chad sagely opined, a much more profitable lot to be with, even on the footing of not being quite one of them, than the terrible toughs, Strether remembered the edifying discrimination, of the American bars and banks round about the opera. Chad had thrown out in the communications following this one, 
for at that time he did once in a while communicate, that several members of a band of earnest workers under one of the great artists had taken him right in, making him dine every night almost for nothing at their place, and even pressing him not to neglect the hypothesis of their being as much in him as in any of them. There had been literally a moment at which it appeared there might be something in him. There had been at any rate a moment at which he had written that he didn't know but what a month or two more might see him enrolled in some atelier. The season had been one at which Mrs. Newsom was moved to gratitude for small mercies. It had broken on them all as a blessing that their absentee had perhaps a conscience, that he was sated in fine with idleness, was ambitious of variety. The exhibition was doubtless as yet not brilliant, but Strether himself, even by that time much enlisted and immersed, had determined, on the part of the two ladies, a temperate approval, and in fact, as he now recollected, a certain austere enthusiasm. But the very next thing that happened had been a dark drop of the curtain. The son and brother had not browsed long in the Montagne Saint-Geneviève, his effective little use of the name of which, like his allusion to the best French, appeared to have been but one of the notes of his rough cunning. The light refreshment of these vain appearances had not accordingly carried any of them very far. On the other hand, it had gained Chad time. It had given him a chance, unchecked, to strike his roots, had paved the way for initiations more direct and more deep. It was Strether's belief that he had been comparatively innocent before this first migration, and even that the first effects of the migration would not have been, without some particular bad accident, to have been deplored. There had been three months, he had sufficiently figured it out, in which Chad had wanted to try. He had tried, though not very hard. He had had his little hour of good faith. The weakness of this principle in him was that almost any accident attestedly bad enough was stronger. Such had, at any rate, markedly been the case for the precipitation of a special series of impressions. They had proved successively these impressions, all of Musette and Francine, but Musette and Francine vulgarized by the larger evolution of the type, irresistibly sharp. He had taken up by what was at the time to be shrinkingly gathered, as it was scantly mentioned, with one ferociously interested little person after another. Strether had read somewhere of a Latin motto, a description of the hours observed on a clock by a traveller in Spain, and he had been led to apply it in thought to Chad's number one, number two, number three. Omnes vulnerat ultima necat, they had all morally wounded, the last had morally killed. The last had been longest in possession, in possession, that is, of whatever was left of the poor boy's fine immortality. And it hadn't been she, it had been one of her early predecessors, who had determined the second migration, the expensive return and relapse, the exchange again, as was fairly to be presumed, of the vaunted best French for some special variety of the worst. He pulled himself then at last together for his own progress back, not with the feeling that he had taken his walk in vain. He prolonged it a little, in the immediate neighbourhood, after he had quitted his chair, and the upshot of the whole morning for him was that his campaign had begun. He had wanted to put himself in relation, and he would be hanged if he were not in relation. 
He was, that at no moment so much as while, under the old arches of the Odéon, he lingered before the charming open-air array of literature classic and casual. He found the effect of tone and tint in the long charged tables and shelves, delicate and appetizing, the impression, substituting one kind of low-priced consummation for another, might have been that of one of the pleasant cafés that overlapped under an awning to the pavement. But he edged along, grazing the tables with his hands firmly behind him. He wasn't there to dip, to consume. He was there to reconstruct. He wasn't there for his own profit. Not, that is, the direct. He was there on some chance of feeling the brush of the wing of the stray spirit of youth. He felt it, in fact, he had it beside him. The old arcade, indeed, as his inner sense listened, gave out the faint sound, as from far off, of the wild waving of wings. They were folded now over the breasts of buried generations, but a flutter or two lived again in the turned page of shock-headed, slouch-hatted loiterers, whose young intensity of type, in the direction of pale acuteness, deepened his vision and even his appreciation of racial differences and whose manipulation of the uncut volume was too often, however, but a listening at closed doors. He reconstructed a possible groping Chad of three or four years before, a Chad who had, after all, simply, for that was the only way to see it, been too vulgar for his privilege. Surely it was a privilege to have been young and happy just there. Well, the best thing Strether knew of him was that he had had such a dream. But his own actual business half an hour later was with the third floor on the boulevard Malherbe, so much as that was definite, and the fact of the enjoyment by the third-floor windows of a continuous balcony, to which he was helped by this knowledge, had perhaps something to do with his lingering for five minutes on the opposite side of the street. There were points as to which he had quite made up his mind, and one of these bore precisely on the wisdom of the abruptness to which events had finally committed him a policy that he was pleased to find not at all shaken as he now looked at his watch and wondered. He had announced himself, six months before, had written out at least that Chad wasn't to be surprised should he see him some day turn up. Chad had thereupon, in a few words of rather carefully colourless answer, offered him a general welcome, and Strether, ruefully reflecting that he might have understood the warning as a hint to hospitality, a bid for an invitation, had fallen back upon silence as the corrective most to his own taste. He had asked Mrs. Newsome, moreover, not to announce him again. He had so distinct an opinion on his attacking his job, should he attack it at all, in his own way. Not the least of this lady's high merits for him was that he could absolutely rest on her word. She was the only woman he had known, even at Woollett, as to whom his conviction was positive that to lie was beyond her art. Sarah Pocock, for instance, her own daughter, though with social ideals, as they said, in some respects different, Sarah, who was, in her way, aesthetic, had never refused to human commerce that mitigation of rigour. There were occasions when he had distinctly seen her apply it. Since, accordingly, at all events, he had had it from Mrs. Newsome that she had, at whatever cost to her more strenuous view, conformed, in the matter of preparing Chad, 
wholly to his restrictions, he now looked up at the fine continuous balcony with a safe sense that if the case had been bungled, the mistake was at least his property. Was there, perhaps, just a suspicion of that in his present pause, on the edge of the boulevard, and well in the pleasant light? Many things came over him here, and one of them was that he should doubtless presently know whether he had been shallow or sharp. Another was that the balcony in question didn't somehow show as a convenience easy to surrender. Poor Strether had at this very moment to recognize the truth, that wherever one paused in Paris, the imagination reacted before one could stop it. This perpetual reaction put a price, if one would, on pauses, but it piled up consequences till there was scarce room to pick one's steps among them. What call had he, at such a juncture, for example, to like Chad's very house? High, broad, clear. He was expert enough to make out in a moment that it was admirably built. It fairly embarrassed our friend by the quality that, as he would have said, it sprang on him. He had struck off the fancy that it might, as a preliminary, be of service to him to be seen, by a happy accident from the third-story windows, which took all the March sun. But of what service was it to find himself making out after a moment that the quality sprung, the quality produced by measure and balance, the fine relation of part to part and space to space, was probably aided by the presence of ornament as positive as it was discreet, and by the complexion of the stone, a cold, fair grey, warmed and polished a little by life, neither more nor less than a case of distinction, such a case as he could only feel unexpectedly as a sort of delivered challenge. Meanwhile, however, the chance he had allowed for, the chance of being seen in time from the balcony, had become a fact. Two or three of the windows stood open to the violet air, and before Strether had cut the knot by crossing, a young man had come out and looked about him, had lighted a cigarette and tossed the match over, and then, resting on the rail, had given himself up to watching the life below while he smoked. His arrival contributed, in its order, to keeping Strether in position, the result of which in turn was that Strether soon felt himself noticed. The young man began to look at him as in acknowledgment of his being himself in observation. This was interesting so far as it went, but the interest was affected by the young man's not being Chad. Strether wondered at first if he were perhaps Chad altered, and then saw that this was asking too much of alteration. The young man was light, bright, and alert, with an air too pleasant to have been arrived at by patching. Strether had conceived Chad as patched but not beyond recognition. He was in presence, he felt, of amendments enough as they stood. It was a sufficient amendment that the gentleman up there should be Chad's friend. He was young, too, then, the gentleman up there. He was very young, young enough apparently to be amused at an elderly watcher, to be curious even to see what the elderly watcher would do on finding himself watched. There was youth in that, there was youth in the surrender to the balcony, there was youth for Strether at this moment in everything but his own business, and Chad's thus pronounced association with youth had given the next instant an extraordinary quick lift to the issue. The balcony, the distinguished front, testified suddenly, for Strether's fancy, to something that was up and up. They placed the whole cause materially, 
and as by an admirable image on a level that he found himself at the end of another moment rejoicing to think he might reach. The young man looked at him still. He looked at the young man, and the issue, by a rapid process, was that this knowledge of a perched privacy appeared to him the last of luxuries. To him, too, the perched privacy was open, and he saw it now but in one light, that of the only domicile, the only fireside, in the great ironic city, on which he had the shadow of a claim. Miss Gostrey had a fireside. She had told him of it, and it was something that doubtless awaited him. But Miss Gostrey hadn't yet arrived. She mightn't arrive for days. And the sole attenuation of his excluded state was his vision of the small, the admittedly secondary hotel in the by-street from the Rue de la Paix, in which her solicitude for his purse had placed him, which affected him somehow as all indoor chill, glass-roofed court and slippery staircase, and which by the same token expressed the presence of Waymarsh even at times when Waymarsh might have been certain to be round at the bank. It came to pass before he moved that Waymarsh, and Waymarsh alone, Waymarsh not only undiluted but positively strengthened, struck him as the present alternative to the young man in the balcony. When he did move it was fairly to escape that alternative. Taking his way over the street at last, and passing through the porte-cochere of the house, was like consciously leaving Waymarsh out. However, he would tell him all about it. End of Book Second Chapter Two